The year is 1197 and the long night has begun. When darkness falls, monsters walk the streets and alleys of the cities, congregating to plot and scheme. Fearing fire, the cross, and the lupines of the wild, the elder Cainites nonetheless seek to guide and control human civilization through centuries-old plots, while the younger vampires scrabble for power, influence, and prestige. Welcome to the world of Dark Ages. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to episode 24 of the World of Dark Ages podcast. My name is Jacob. And I'm Peter. So, Peter, what have you been doing lately? Uh, I've been working my ass off because I haven't had my summer vacation yet, but thanks to uh, the glory that is the horrible socialism of Scandinavia, I will now have four weeks of paid vacations. Uh, so that's okay. Uh, yeah, that's nice. Uh, this today uh, is the last day of my four weeks of paid vaca- vacation, thanks to the horrors of, of uh, socialism here in Denmark. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's it's been it's been nice with the with the vacation, but uh, yeah, tomorrow at time of recording, it's back to the uh, to the grindstone. Whereas you get to enjoy four weeks of not working. <laughs> yes, and and I will enjoy that, and I will hopefully have time to to. Uh, make something fun and interesting for our listeners awesome um all right so the book we're looking at today is veil of night written by chris hartford ellen keely james keely michael lee sarah rourke lucian solban and adam tinworth and developed by philip r bull um so it is uh, quite a lot of people but it's also quite a long book the cover is Okay, nothing special, a vampire, possibly a Nosferatu, on a camel. Um, the one thing that I didn't like about it was the design that they used for the, the title logo. It looks a bit weird, a bit... I, I can't really put my finger on why I don't like it, but there's just there's something about it that, that I think doesn't really fit the, the feel of the whole thing. Yeah, there's there's something, I don't know, a bit a bit plastic, like, like a cheap children's toy about the, the the way it looks and the colors they've used uh, yeah it's a, it, it's it's a bit i don't know maybe maybe it looks a bit too fantasy or something but it just it yeah that that sticks out otherwise you know the cover it's it's nothing special um the interior art it generally comes in two flavors you have <clears throat> some pictures that are washed out and blurry and then you have some pictures that are really nicely detailed. I especially love the various clan pictures. I think they are awesome. Uh, the Nosferatu and Gangrel pictures, they are some of my favorite, but really all of them are amazing. Uh, we do sadly get a lot of oversized curved swords, as usual when, when they're talking about the Middle East. Uh, you have swords that would be a European falchion, uh, and up to swords that have never existed, like the one held by the Brugia on page 121, uh, the closest to that would be a relatively obscure European sword called a Kriegsmesser, but that was never that broad. So that's uh, yeah, that's yeah, a bit of a fantasy yeah, thing. Yeah, it could also be something similar to the Chinese. I can't remember if it's the Dao, but you, uh, you also uh, have Dadao. The... It would be a, it would be the Dadao. Yeah, the Dadao. Uh, but but yeah, I I agree. It's it's uh, very over the top. <laughs> 
Yeah. However, um, the spear carried by the Lybon on page 125 looks quite ap- appropriate for a sub-Saharan spear. Um, at least if my knowledge of, of African weaponry uh, is, is correct. I'm, I'm not an expert there, but I have uh, done a bit of, of research and it does very much look like a, a sub-Saharan uh, spear. Yeah, it um, does. And he has a very appropriate club as well. Yeah. Now, obviously, this book concerns itself with a religions that, religion that's very iconoclastic. Uh, so there's some stuff that they shouldn't depict. And I think they su- uh, succeed in being respectful towards Islam in this regard. Yeah, they, uh, yeah they, there aren't any pictures that, at least from what I can tell, is, is even um, possible to interpret it in, in, in any kind of, I don't know, heretical way. So, so yeah, it's, it's done quite well, actually. Yeah, um, one one picture that I I didn't like, even though it's it's a very uh, well done picture, is on page twelve because if it feels like you have nudity for nudity's sake. You have a bunch of of topless women. Yeah, um, the, the harem picture, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Where where at least some of them are vampires, and it's like, yeah, it 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 feels like cheap titillation. Um, what did you think of of the art? Uh, are there enough hats? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well. It, it depends on if you define a turban as a hat, but yeah, I, I agree that the um, the tone of the artwork, if if we put it like that, is is very appropriate, and it's it's there's nothing over the top, and you don't have the the kind of um, the, the the kind of Muslim invader uh, foreigners uh, Eastern foreign invader kind of look that we've unfortunately had in some other. Uh, books that uh, has been dealing with the with the Middle East, uh, so so that's that's nice that we actually have people that look like people. Um, there's there's one uh, it might actually be yeah the the first one on on page six where you have um, three characters you have a a young child who looks like he's cosplaying Aladdin uh, and then a a woman. Um, uh, who has a very modern dress and and it's supposed to be a veil, but it looks more like uh, a ninja mask. But then you have a, a Tuareg, and and he's mentioned in a flavor text as as being a Tuareg. Um, and uh, what w- what's interesting is that uh, the Tuareg is is he's he's wearing a turban, uh, but in in the Tuareg society, uh, men are the one who are supposed to cover their faces. Uh, when out and about uh, with, with other people, so uh, if if the woman felt that a need to cover her face, then the Tuareg should probably as well. Um, and and so, but, but besides that, it, it looks rather cool. Uh, what I'm missing from him, though, the, the Tuareg warrior, is that he, he uh, they they have very iconic swords. Uh, and and daggers. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and I I have one of those, and I don't know if it's uh, if it's a short sword or a really long dagger, but they are they are very nicely done. Um, and and what's interesting with with the Tuaregs from a kind of um, a world of darkness uh, perspective, uh, besides the fact that the men are covering their faces. Uh, and they even have special spoons so that they can eat while wearing their uh, the face veils. Is that? <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. Uh, and they're also quite beautiful and made sometimes. Uh, but they they have like a, a cultural taboo against uh, touching iron. Uh, so uh, 
so so their swords the the grips are always uh, made from other metals or uh, wood uh, and uh, usually the one i have is uh, is wood and and bronze and i think also uh, small segments of of horn and aluminum as well uh, so so it's it's some very fanciful artwork uh, and and this the scabbard as well is is I think it's goat skin. Um, I haven't tasted it, so I don't know. But uh, it's it's goat skin <laughs> and also covered in in um, finely hammered uh, and uh, partially engraved uh, bronze and and also uh, dyed basically very thin parchment as as a bit of a um, uh, as a decoration. Uh, but mm. but yeah, over, overall it's it's uh, it's very nicely done, but. Uh, again, from a World of Darkness perspective, you you had a Fey who don't like the uh, who, who don't like iron. Uh, so so if you want to make something out of that, there's an opportunity uh, to. I, I'm not saying that every Tuareg is is a Fey, but uh, <laughs> it, it it could be um, you, you could do something with it, like perhaps a um, one of their great leaders back in the days was. Uh, a fey or at least fey related uh, and they instituted or they didn't like the uh, the touch of cold iron so as a favor or as a sign of respect to that person they uh, there was something that was incorporated in uh, in in the uh, culture of of the tuareg society uh, but but yeah, that's that's just a slight detour from from the rest of it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, besides that, um, I I like the artwork. Uh, the tone of it is is nice. The uh, the character portraits both from the clans and when you get the um, the, the characters, uh, the the NPCs, uh, they're they're quite nicely done. Uh, there's one thing that it really didn't bother me, but it, it kind of struck me, and that is that there are a lot of people uh, who has earrings, and and I'm thinking if that's something that we in the West has kind of ascribed to people from this region. You, if if you look in Aladdin, for example, you have the the uh, the genie uh, has earrings, and I don't remember if Aladdin has as well, but there's there's this image of um, Middle Eastern people running around with this kind of harem pants and and pierced uh, ears, um, and yeah, and you have on page two hundred and twelve as well. You have a jinn uh, who's literally wearing nothing but a huge earring. Uh, so <laughs> I'm I'm wondering. I don't know. Do, do any of our listeners know if that's a thing that that we in the West have created as as a stereotype for? Uh, for people from the Middle East. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. I I actually don't uh, I actually don't know, but but yeah, now that you mention it, there is a, a quite a bit of body jewelry, and I mean for the um, the the um, picture of the Ravnos, that makes sense because it's clearly supposed to be someone from um, from India, mm. where body jewelry was uh, quite common. Uh, I don't know if it was. Uh, 
common back then. I think it was, but I know that you know once uh, uh, Westerners got to uh, to India later on, one of the things that they described were these nose rings and and everything. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> but anyway, um, before we get into the book, I want to say that from the start, Dark Ages was a bit simplistic and stereotypical because you had Christian Europe, and that's where most of the clans were. The Asamites, they were the Muslim vampires from the Muslim lands. The Setites were the African vampires from Africa. Then they introduced the Libon as a bloodline. They became sort of the African vampires, um, or at least the sub-Saharan African vampires. The Setites were then the North African vampires. The Salubri had been to the Far East. The Ravnos were the vampires from India. The Tamish were the pagan Eastern European vampires. And everywhere else that wasn't Christian Europe, that was just gangrel lands. Yeah. And then slowly uh, a more nuanced picture emerged. And this book is pretty much the final nail in the coffin uh, of that simplistic view because it presents the Islamic world in the world of darkness and it's just and it's not just Asamites all the way down um, which is really really great so I, I think with this book you have sort of the final picture that that makes um, the medieval world of darkness more interesting uh, now, before everything else, before even the authors and the table of content, we get a two-page story about how uh, Suleiman ibn Abdullah uh, La Sombra tried and failed to make the Prophet Muhammad his puppet. Um, since this is a very central thing in the setting, uh, I like this as a little intro, and I think it's very well written. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, and I think if, if if I remember my high school religion classes uh, correctly, there there is actually a story about um, about uh, the the prophet meeting a I, I think it's a jinn and it's not a vampire, but but a jinn uh, and uh, him kind of just overwhelming um, the, the jinn with with his presence and and the fact that, and, and they mention it later on, the fact that uh, the, Muhammad considers Islam not just for for people or for humans, but for for every creature. Like if you accept uh, Allah as uh, as your Lord and Savior, basically, then then it doesn't matter if if you're a jinn or not. You can still um, you you can still be be one of of the, the proper uh, people, so to speak. So that, yeah, and uh, it, it's a cool twist. Yeah, they get into that later, but that's, that's really one of the things that um, helps define vampires in the Muslim world mm. is that in, in Christianity, if you're not human, uh, then you're a demon. Uh, but but here, even if you're a vampire, you can be saved. So that's uh, that's pretty cool. I should also mention, uh, I, I we're both aware that technically whenever you talk about the prophet muhammad you should be saying peace beyond him but we're going to mention him so many times that this episode is going to be far too long if we have to add that every single time so uh, just assume that we're uh, we're doing it to be respectful um <laughs> we then have a four-page prelude story and i see what they're trying to do with it uh, present some of the setting that we'll get into later but i don't think it really accomplishes that um and it feels a bit like it's being mystical just to be mystical, you know, this grand uh, magical ritual just in order to to be uh, sort of grand and mystical. Um, also, we've mentioned it before, they use the term firing arrows, where the historically accurate version should be shooting arrows. A minor thing, but still, you know, we're, we're doing historical stuff. Yeah. Uh, 
I do like that they include paper manufacturing in yeah. the story because manufacturing paper was something that was beginning to co- become more and more common in the Muslim world at this time. It hadn't really gotten into Europe. There were some places, but it wasn't a big thing, but it wasn't the Muslim world. But what, what was you, your take on uh, on the intro story? Yeah, I, I, I think it, uh, it served its purpose, but it's... Uh, and, and I do like, like the little touches... Uh, um, um, of uh, things like the, the paper manufacturing and stuff like that, but but overall, it's I, I don't know. It's it, it it's it for me at least. It wasn't really that memorable. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't anything special. Yeah, exactly. For me, it it failed to capture my attention all that much. Uh, we then had the intro, and it's a bigger nine pages, but given the size and scope of the book, it makes sense to have such a big intro. Mm. There's a lot of, of very nice and useful info here, including how the Muslim world names the clans, because obviously they're not yeah. going to be using uh, many of the Western names. There's a lexicon, which is a really good thing to have, uh, and uh, a note that this book doesn't follow the Islamic calendar. Uh, it explains the Islamic ca- Islamic calendar, and then it says that it doesn't follow it, uh, which makes sense because most of the people reading this book will be used to the Christian calendar instead. So it's just going to be weird if you constantly mentally have to translate yeah, the dates yeah. to uh, to Christian dates. Um, I like how they right from the start mentioned that the Islamic world is not and has never been in a uh, in in the dark ages. Uh, how their culture, learning, and so on has flourished almost from the beginning. Now, obviously, Europe was never really in a complete dark age. The whole the dark ages is is not really appropriate. But uh, the time between the fall of, of Western Rome and Charlemagne's ascension, it was a troubled time for large, large parts of Europe. And you did see a lot of scholarship being lost, scholarship which was was maintained in, in the Muslim world and which then got back to Europe during the Crusades mm-hmm. and the Reconquista and stuff like that. Uh, one thing that that I think lacks um, here, I'm not sure if it should have been in a previous book uh, or this is the the place to put it, but it's how Europeans view Islam. Now, obviously, dedicated scholars, um, travelers who've been to Muslim lands and those living in the Crusader states, they're likely to have some actual knowledge of Islam. But most people in Europe who knew uh anything about Islam, knew they existed, they had some really weird ideas about what uh, the Muslims believe. For example, if you look at the uh, Song of Roland, which was written in the Middle Ages, the Saracens in that story, they worship a trinity of Muhammad, Termagant, and Apollo. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they, uh, that's that's weird. Um for some, for for you know, it's a weird belief about someone as aggressively monotheistic, monotheistic as the Muslims. Um, I I mean, it it probably should have been mentioned in an earlier book that that you know Europeans have some really weird idea about Muslims if they know that they exist. But I mean, all in all, this is a really really good intro. Yeah, yeah, and and I agree that if if they hadn't done it before, then they should have put that kind of uh, explanation or of how. Europe um, or, or Europeans saw Islam and and the Muslim country uh, because it, it's such a long book anyway. So having cutting down on, down on some things uh, and and having a page or two about um, things like that because those things are really interesting, at least to me. When you when you have these weird 
kind of like, yeah, and then they do this, and and you have uh, supposed uh, travelogues and and travel journals depicting people in in the uh, far realms having their faces in the torsos and people just jumping around on one leg and stuff like that. So so there's a lot of interesting weird stuff from uh, from the Middle Ages that you could include in in books like this. Uh, and and if nothing else, so that you if if you want to have a game where you contrast how the Europeans actually view the Muslims with how the Muslims actually are, then it would be useful to include a few things like that. Yeah. So, um, chapter one is the history of Islam, and by extension, the Arabic world, and it also has a little bit about the lands that Islam conquered. Obviously, it also interweaves the history of Canaanites, and it does it well. By necessity, this is a broad strokes look at Muslim history. Uh, but since it's a topic I didn't know a lot about, um, I think it gave me a good grounding in a lot of things. For example, the difference between Sunni and Shia branches of, of Islam. Uh, so even for someone like me, who I, I would argue that I know more than your average Westerner about Islam, but I learned a lot of new stuff uh, here which to me says that this was a, a good one. And obviously you can always do a little more um, research yourself if you feel like there's something you need more to need to know more about. Uh, I also think that it's done respectfully. Uh, there's no condemnation. There's no undue fawning over um, this culture. We get introduced to uh, two key elements for Canaanites in, in this chapter. One is the keening, which is a roar that all vampires who are sleeping the day sleep on the Arabian Peninsula hears, uh, and which emanates from the black stone in the Kaaba, uh, starting with the ascension of Muhammad as the prophet of Islam. Uh, when the black stone was temporarily stolen, um, there's a whole story about that uh, that we don't need to go into, but it was stolen by some people and then the keening actually ceased and then you have this idea of a of a powerful Nosferatu sorcerer who put up wards that lessened the effect of the keening once the stone was brought back. We later get specific rules for the effects of the keening. But I think it's an, an, an interesting uh, effect. It, it sort of makes uh, makes uh, the Arabian Peninsula a little, little interesting, a little bit different because it is the focus of this uh, powerful religion. The second element we get introduced to is the Ashura, a supposedly united Muslim sect which mm. aims to unite and rule all the Muslim Canaanite world. Uh, this group was founded by uh, one we've mentioned before, Suleiman ibn Abdullah al-Asombra, who sought to influence the Prophet Muhammad once it seemed that Islam was going to be a power factor in Arabia. And then he found himself converted to Islam instead. Uh, we get into the Ashira more later, but I like them as a concept, especially because it's clear that they don't have as much influence over the Muslim world as they would like. You have some cities that are Ashira controlled, and you have others that are most definitely not, even though they are in Muslim lands. The final thing I want to say about this chapter in relation to the uh, Ashira, that was what you mentioned before, that yeah, the Quran contains a section that says that the jinn can be saved as long as they submit to Allah. And so the story here is that in the world of darkness, there was originally also a section that said Canaanites could be saved, but it was edited out later by a corrupt dynasty. But yeah, I, I think this does a really good job. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I, I like the little touch that, uh, that you mentioned that it was edited out because Again, it's uh, I've spoken about this previously and, and, and many times. Like you, you have the kind of 
real politics of of uh, religion and and that you kind of like you you can always twist everything so that it works with with your needs uh, and and having a, a thing like this uh, is is just up that alley and I, I really like it um, and it, but otherwise I, I completely agree with with everything you say um, I I do like the fact that they uh, kind of seamlessly introduced the idea quite early on that uh, the Knights uh, they they make more or less of an active choice not to influence uh, the the new growing religion and the politics of that religion. Uh, they they kind of uh, Suleiman uh, and some of the others kind of make the choice to take a back seat to to see how things work out, which is nice because then then you can avoid the whole thing of. Uh, vampires controlling everything behind the scenes, or vampires being responsible for for everything and and stuff like that, which which is quite boring. And and we both kind of mentioned that we don't really like it uh, in in other episodes. Um, there there are a few things, and um, I'm, I'm going to come back to the Ashira later on because I I really like the idea as well. But there there are a few historical things that I I just going to nitpick on and. Um, uh, and and one of them is uh, that they they mentioned that when uh, or this might be later on, but but they mentioned that when when Saladin uh, conquers Jerusalem, he treats everyone uh, he, he treats the, the captured uh, Christians and Jews with uh, with proper respect and everything. And and he did compared to how the Christians treated the citizens of Jerusalem when they conquered conquered the city. Uh, but that's, but a, that's a low bar to clear. Yeah, exactly. It's a low bar to clear. But he still kind of demanded ransom for a lot of them, and quite a few of the people were still sold into slavery. So so it, it wasn't all just uh, being being nice to each other. Um, but, but, but yeah, I, I agree. I, I think I recognized most of the story of, of uh, how Islam grew as a religion from uh, from, from my high school uh, classes, as I mentioned. Uh, there, but but there, there are some things that I I really do like about uh, it, and and it's kind of um, it's a similar theme to how um, uh, basically how Christianity. Uh, grew as well because you you have the uh, the symbols and the ideas of, of the old religion being incorporated into yeah. the new one. So, for example, the uh, the stone you mentioned, Kaaba uh, in in Mecca, uh, the the black stone uh, that was and uh, it's supposed to be a meteorite that fell from the sky and and or a piece of the moon and all of those ideas go back to pre-Islamic what we would call pagan religions, because you had a lot of uh, religions. And of, of course, the moon is, the, the crescent moon is the symbol of, of Islam, uh, which, by the way, uh, going back to the artwork, I really like how they have incorporated or, or transformed uh, the ankh uh, and combined the, the, the lower part, the kind of cross part of the ankh, with uh, a, the star and crescent of Islam into a, a kind of a new shape. Uh, that, that oh yeah, used... I, I didn't even notice that. You're right. That looks really awesome. Yeah, it's 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 a very nice way of doing it. Um, and and also, um, when when we talk about or when you read about 
the kind of the, the dynasty that uh, that Muhammad peace be upon him left behind him uh, it it kind of reminded me probably because I just read about uh, uh, Emperor uh, Augustus uh, but it kind of reminded me of of how the Roman uh, Republic went from a republic to to an empire uh, where you had uh, the first ruler being kind of like a, a really good one and uh, and he created an empire and and uh, Muhammad of course uh, kind of expanded on everything and and uh, made laws and rules and and regulations kind of governing how things should be and that people should be treated more equal and and slaves and women should have rights and stuff like that and and kind of starting building an empire and and then the people that came after him, in the same way as the people coming after uh, or who came after uh, Emperor Augustus wasn't really as good as him. And then when you get to, <laughs> you get all the problems with corruption and, and yeah. uh, nepotism and infighting and stuff like that. So, yeah, when when it mentions that that Muhammad died without naming a successor, all I could think about was the quote from uh, the Princess Bride. You fool, you fell prey to one of the classic blunders yeah. because seriously, Name a successor. Yeah. It's it's just gonna save so much trouble. Yeah. Um. But yeah, you're 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 right. Um. And one of the things that they do really well, also, I think, is is they they start with with Muhammad. They don't go into the sort of prehistory of of um, the Arab Peninsula because not only would that be too big, but also they they do it in a very clever way where they say that there weren't really that many powerful vampires in the area because most of it's desert and what wasn't desert wasn't all that interesting. So there were some vampires, but there, there weren't really those powerful vampires who would have instantly pounced on this new religion. So they can introduce vampires later and at a slower pace so it doesn't take up that much space. I think that was really well done. Yeah, exactly. And, and if you're one of those people who like to have other uh, supernatural beings uh, in, uh, in, in your world of darkness, then you could easily say that, that you have... Uh, and they mentioned the silent striders, for example, but uh, but lupines obviously have a connection to the moon and stuff like that, so you can make something like that for um, for Kaaba and and Mecca. Uh, as I mentioned, you you have the uh, Tuaregs in in northern Africa uh, who uh, with their uh, possible affinity to Fey. Uh, so so yeah, there's uh, and of course you have the jinn, which could be spirits or ghosts or or basically whatever. So. So yeah. there is room for for other uh, other stuff, but it's it's um, there's a quite quite a natural reason why there wouldn't be an abundance of, of vampires in the area already. So so yeah, that's that's a very good point to make. Yeah. So chapter two is about the Ashira, uh, which means brethren. Uh, like I mentioned, they're they're a sec they're they're kind of like the Camarilla in modern times, trying to dominate on life in the Muslim world. I think it makes sense seeing as how Islam is a fairly new religion and it managed to do a lot of centralization. And even at the time that the book is set, Islam has some uh, fairly large dynasties that, that cover a lot of land and they have more than Europe a very bureaucratic centralization. It's always been one of Islam's uh, strong points at this time in history, um, the kind of, of bureaucracy that they've managed to, uh, to build up. 
As a device for storytelling, I like it because the Ashira is not presented as being a dominating factor in all Islamic lands. Uh, after all, Islam conquered cities that were thousands of years old, so there were some elder vampires who weren't down with converting to some new religion. But you also have some older vampires who've done so either because they were actually persuaded, but in many cases simply because saying that they've converted to Islam just makes things a whole lot easier. Yeah. Uh, the chap. The chapter also tackles how Canaanites go about handling Islam's five pillars, especially the, the Hajj, the pilgrimage, and the daily prayers, and how they get around Islam's ban on eating blood. Uh, all in all, I think this chapter does a good job of presenting the Ashira. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and again, we have this kind of this, how, how do we solve these religious uh, or, or legal problems in, in a very like rational way? And... Um, like, like with, with the drinking of blood and, and stuff like that and um, of course you have one of the five pillars is, is Ramadan the, the feast fasting uh, and of course for a vampire it's really easy because you're not allowed to drink or, or eat while the sun is up uh, so <laughs> yeah. that, that's not going to be a problem for uh, <laughs> for anyone and, and I know that here in Sweden as, as a side note uh, I, I know that here in Sweden and probably other parts of the world as well, uh, some Muslims solve the whole thing because uh, at, during when, when Ramadan uh, takes place during the summer, um, since it's a different calendar than ours, the, the month of Ramadan where you're supposed to be uh, fasting uh, moves around. So uh, the years when Ramadan is during the summer, it could be quite a problem up here in Sweden. Mm, yeah. uh, but there's, there's apparently a, a, a sanctioned solution in that you go by when the sun is up uh, down over Mecca. Uh, so, so you have, uh, obviously that would be kind of hard to figure out in, in the dark ages, but, but still the, there is a solution uh, that that solves that problem uh, for for people who aren't living or or who uh, are living in uh, places where you have very long days, um, but but yeah, it's uh, as with most religions, there are always exceptions to everything then and loopholes that you can use. Uh, for example, there is uh, in uh, the 16th uh, surah and the uh, 67th. Um, I don't know if it's verses they count, but there there is even a mentioning of uh, making uh, alcoholic beverages from the fruits of, I think it's dates and grapes, and that there is great wisdom in it uh, for for those who uh, who drink it moderately. So, uh, so yeah, there is, as with every religion, uh, Islam also have uh, has its its loopholes. Um, yeah, I am. What is it? I am not allowed to taste the fermentation of the grain nor of the grape. Yeah, well, this is made from honey. Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, but but yeah, the the Ashira. Um, do you remember what I said about the uh, the Eastern Gangrel when we we had that? Uh, what was it? Wind from the East book of of how cool it would be if instead of just the one clan, it would be an entire sect similar to the Camarilla. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. and here we we do get that. I, uh, I got of course everything it... everything I wanted from from that <laughs> idea. They kind of put they, they not only did they do it here, they've done it really really well. So you have um, I I really like the fact that that it's still the same clans, uh, but they have a different 
kind of, of touch and feel to it. They, they have a, a slight um, twist to to them, and and you have the Ashira, and as you mentioned, they're, they're, it's the Ashira as a, a I don't know if we should call it a sect or, or a club or whatever, but it, it's quite similar to the Camarilla, and and it, it makes sense. It's it's not just oh look we're we're the Muslim Camarilla, but it's it, it's something that has a, a very natural place in the society that they live in and they fit in quite nicely and uh and and yeah it's it's really well done and uh i i just wish that instead of having the the kuajin or the kindred of the east they would have just done something similar for uh for for the far east or, or from for uh asia uh as well uh, as as they did with the uh, with the Muslim world or with, with the Arabian Peninsula with, with the Shira because it it works really well. I really, really like it. Yeah, uh, and also it, it makes for some really interesting role-playing possibilities because if you have a city where most of the vampires are Shira but you do have some that, that aren't a member, that can, uh, that can result in some interesting stuff. And the way that they've presented it, it as a game master you can pretty much pick and choose. You can have a city w- uh, where there are just almost no Ashira vampires. You can have a city that is fully Ashira because later when they describe uh, the, the Islamic world in, in a travelogue, it, it, it shows all the different ways you can do it. Uh, the only problem here is that it creates a bit of a, um, uh, of a plot hole because this is the first time we hear of the Ashira. Yeah. We never know what happened to them because obviously since they were invented at this point, they, they, they haven't been mentioned in modern times. You can understand why they haven't been mentioned before in uh, in Dark Ages because it's focused so much on Western Europe and they didn't know that the Ashira existed. Um, I haven't read 5th edition, but I've heard that they are back in 5th edition in some way. So uh, those of our listeners who have read 5th edition, if they could just give us a, a brief uh, comment on, on Facebook on... I, because I know the Ashiras mentioned in fifth edition, are they back or are they just mentioned? Uh, so, so what, what, where are they? Because it is an an interesting idea. Yeah, it is. But it it but you you kind of touch upon something that I feel with kind of the entire book really, and it, and it's that in in some ways it feels like uh, the this entire idea is kind of its own. Um, its own subsetting to the world of darkness that it's it's not really the world of darkness because there are there's too much other stuff in it that as you mentioned don't really fit in because yeah why why aren't they around today did it what what happened during the the anarch revolt uh, like what what happened when uh, did they go to the new world when uh, when the europeans finally made it to uh, to the Americas and stuff like that. There's, there's like, it's a kind of separation that doesn't really make any sense um, because there's so much information missing from it. Like, did did people just stop being Ashira and and decide to join the uh, the Camarilla and the Sabbath, depending on which clans they were? Did they, I don't know, did did all of them die? What like what what happened to them? Uh, and, yeah, and so. For for me, it kind of feels like if if I would run uh, uh, a Veil of the Night campaign, 
that's that's like a, a very crucial conundrum that that I would really have to f- think about. Like, am am I just gonna do this as as a kind of uh, different separate uh, world of, of its own or or how do i incorporate it into the main world of darkness yeah exactly uh so we move on to chapter three uh which introduces the islamic world in the form of a travelogue written in character uh, i've mentioned how i'm not the biggest fan of in character stuff but i think this is very very well written so in this case, I, I don't have that much of a problem with it simply because just how well done it is. Uh, now, since it has to cover a huge area, most of the information here is very basic. It's enough to give you an idea of various um, cities and lands. This is good enough for storytellers to get an idea of where they might want to set a chronicle uh, or for uh, use if they want the player characters to travel to a certain place. And it can help players decide where their characters might be from if they want to be from the Muslim world. Uh, obviously, more research is always good, but this this covers the basis. Um, and, you know, you might read something and think, okay, this sounds really interesting. I want to set a chronicle here. Let's do more research about this place. Uh, we also, at the end of the chapter, get some canines from the various cities that the author visits. None of them are given stats beyond clan, generation, nature, demeanor, and age. So you can basically customize them for your game. Uh, we also have a sidebar on slavery in Muslim lands, and while it is much more prevalent than in Christian lands, I wish there had been some mention of Christian slavery, either here as a contrast or in one of the previous books covering uh, Europe, so that you understand that you know there was also slavery in Christian lands, yeah. not just in Muslim lands. However, I really like this chapter. I think it gives good, solid information that that's really really useful yeah i i was actually a bit split on this one because um it it was fairly well written uh but i i don't know if it was just me that when i read it i i didn't find the the character narrating it that interested so i i wasn't really i i i was i, I didn't really care about what happened to him and and because that is true he's a bit bland <laughs> yeah he's a bit bland and and he's he's an asamite trader which in in and of itself isn't really a bad idea but it's it's kind of boring how often he mentioned that he has to bribe the guards for arriving in into a city after sundown and that it's really expensive and that some of his stuff went missing or whatever and and now he's gonna lose money and and whatever so again like like you mentioned it's it's well written and the actual information that you get through this chapter is is very useful and interesting in and of itself it's it's just the way that uh, that it's presented that really doesn't do it for me uh and i think because this this book is from the is it from what is it, early 2000s um, 2001 2000, April yeah and and I think that around that time uh, the second edition of the Warhammer role-playing game was out on the market and um, when it comes to uh, when it comes to kind of like having um, books that that describe a certain setting of course in the warhammer world you have the empire and you have bretonia and and things like that uh i think they they did it really well because you you have uh you have chapters that 
like for each each region in um, in Britonia, for example, you have just one or two pages of of general information, and then you have a few story seeds, uh, and uh, and and it's still not in character, but but fluff enough that that you kind of get uh, 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 you you get more than just the boring bare facts, uh, but at the same time it's a lot easier going through like okay now okay what's what's going on in in grenada and i need to figure out i i need to find the chapter that is or or the section of in in veil of night that is about grenada and then i need to read through all of it and go past the the section where 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 the trader is is making his trading deals and then i have to oh and there is the interesting the, or the the actual piece of fact that i was actually looking for uh, yeah. So, so if 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 anything, um, the, and especially since this is such a long book, it's it's almost two hundred thirty pages long. Um, since you already have uh, the section on Islam and the section of um, the, the more historical section about uh, how what happened during the Crusades and stuff like that, all of those are already not in character, but more of a. a uh, and not, not really fictional, but it's it's more of a narrative. Having another section where you have to filter through all of this um, kind of narration, it's it's a bit too much for me. So I, I would have liked if they had done something simpler. Uh, and as an example of how it's done really well, I would have looked on on the the Empire and or the setting books for uh, Warhammer Second Edition. Yeah, it, we've we've mentioned it before, and I think it bears mentioned again. It it does mean, like you said, it's difficult to find specific information. Like you said, if 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 you want to uh, to have characters visit Granada, and you just okay, I need to figure out what did they say about Granada. You're right. You do have to wade through some other stuff that isn't really relevant. Um, so so that is that is the the problem with uh, with doing it in character. Mm. I'm, I'm gonna um, give I'm gonna yeah. give a big shout out to the fact that they have uh, a really simplistic but really useful map of the Islamic world. Oh uh, yes, yes, and and I've, that I've complained about maps in previous books. So this one is uh, it, it's a good one because it's it's basically well it's 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 a map of the Islamic world and and you have the important cities uh, marked out, but it's. It, 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 there, it's nothing too complicated. You, you have a bunch of cities in a map, and you can tell just about where they are in relation to each other, but really nothing more. And you don't need anything more than that, which, again, it's, it makes it a useful map. Uh, and it's the same with the map of Damascus that they have uh, in a later chapter. It's, it, it's that it's, it's simplistic enough to... Um, so so that you can get an, an overview of it um, very easily, and uh, but at the same time it has enough details on it so that you can uh, you could probably even use it as an in-game map if you wanted to. So yeah, that, that's a really good plus. Yeah, uh, I totally agree there. So chapter four gives us the first part of the gaming stuff, uh, introducing the clans, bloodlines, and roads of the Islamic world. Uh, we don't have the Tremere, Tzmish, or Ventrue clans, but instead we get a write-up of the Salubri, the Lybon, and the Bali. 
Uh, all of this makes uh, sense because the Tremere have yet to establish themselves in the Muslim world, which makes the Salubri more prevalent. The Tzmish, they're very territorial and their expansion southeast hasn't reached Muslim lands. Uh, and while there are a tiny group of in true in Arabia, they do mention them, the clan is pretty much focused on, on Christian lands. The Libon are from lands closer to the Islamic world and the Bali are described as having their strongholds in the Middle East. So, you know, it, it's, it's a good choice who they leave out, who they uh, keep in. I don't really know if all the clans and bloodlines needed full two-page write-ups since most of them, uh, they don't vary that much from how they're presented in the core book. Like you mentioned before, they, they, um, they have been given uh, a really, really good um, Middle Eastern flavor, but that didn't really need the full two pages. But like I said, the art here is great. And the Salubri even has a curved sort of proper proportions. <laughs> So that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, the roads are, ni roads are nice variations, though I don't know that we needed a whole new road of humanity. Uh, come the next edition, their way of doing the roads uh, is one I really like. So uh, I think uh, that that the the second edition does a really good job with the with the variations on the roads. Uh, but how did you like this chapter? Uh, I I really liked it as well. I didn't mind that the the clans have uh, have such long. Um, well, not chapter, but sections uh, for for each of the clans, uh, because again, it's it's a really long book, and you might as well, if you're gonna spend hours and hours reading it, you it's at least make sure that you have some proper and useful information, which I think there is in this. Um, I don't really like the fact that that the Bali um, gets so much attention at all, but it's it's more because I don't really like the idea of the Bali in the world of darkness. But again, if if you're going to have um, if, if you're going to have them in your setting, it's good that you at least get some useful information on them. Uh, I do think it's kind of weird that they. Uh, that that Bali are accepted because again it's it, it does go back to the whole everyone who submits to Allah can be saved but on the same time it feels a bit weird that the Ashira as as an organization where you have a bunch of other um, clans especially the uh, the Bene Hakim the the Asamites who in in some or according to some have part of the clan weakness due to the Bali, I I don't think that they would be very welcoming to to Bali into the uh, in, into the sect. And like if if you think that it's Meech and the Tremere have bad blood between them, I'd say that that the uh, the Asamites and the Bali have it even worse. So Yeah and, and the Salubri as well yeah, who, who are yeah, here presented yeah. as being a lot more accepted yeah. um but yeah you're you're right i mean the the bali are, are always um a problem and i do prefer them as straight up hardcore antagonists like these are the one group of vampires where you can be uh the good guys by by opposing them or at least the less bad guys these are these are the ones that that are the the arch typical uh, enemies and if they're to be included that's the way i like them to simply being the the one group that everyone can agree okay we're going to do something about these guys yeah exactly um, but speaking of the banu hakim uh i like that name a lot more than asamite i think asamite is a great name for them in a western 
uh, context, whereas the Banu Hakim <coughs> sounds sounds really great. Yeah. Um, I love I love the fact that uh, up until this point, it's really been okay. The Muslim world is run by the Asimites. The Asimites are the Muslim vampires. There is that connection, and here uh, they yeah. are. They're one of the uh, smaller groupings in the Ashira because you have this. Uh, they they do embrace Muslims. They have embraced a lot of Muslims because they they like uh, the whole um, discipline, martial uh, outlook, and their their <coughs> zeal. Uh, but obviously, they're the Banu Hakim. They they either worship or at least serve their antediluvian Hakim. So there's a lot of them who can't be Ashura because they're not willing to submit to Allah because they if if they got into a situation where they had to choose between uh, Islam and uh, their Hakim, yeah. yeah, their clan, they would choose the clan. Uh, so it's it's interesting to see how we've gone from from the the Asimites, uh, dominating Islam to being uh, one of the the lesser yeah, sort of yeah, Muslim exactly. clans, and and with uh, and and I do like how it um, it doesn't deviate from how uh, they are described in in other books that that you do actually have this uh, kind of uh, not not really a dispute but but more more of a thing in their clan that that a lot of the younger uh, um, Hakims or Asamites who are more likely to be Muslim uh, have different opinions from from the elders of the clan and it's it's a kind of a, an ongoing debate uh, in uh, in Alamut on how they should act and deal with things because on the one hand you have to deal with the Christian invaders on the other hand as you said mentioned you you should be loyal to your uh, <clears throat> to your uh, to your clan and to your antediluvian uh, and so it it could be uh, uh, you could probably have some interesting discussions and debates uh, if if you include that in uh, in your game but but yeah it's um, it, it, yeah it, it's an interesting thing that you mentioned yeah so chapter five really gets into game mechanics starting with character creation uh we get a look at the various ethnicities of the muslim world and what each of them means which i think it's really nice since it's something a lot of people are probably not aware of you know most people if you if you ask them what's the difference between a turk and a kurd and a persian and an arab uh you know they 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 just like what what yeah. aren't they all just muslims but no here you they they give you a short uh, idea of, of the various ethnicities in, in the Muslim world. Uh, we also have a short discussion on gender and religion, uh, looking at the challenges faced by playing a woman and or a non-Muslim. Uh, there's a list of sample names, which seems to be all Arabic. So you might want to do your own research if you want to play someone who's not got an Arabic name, like someone with a Persian name, for example, mm -hmm. or uh, an, an Amazigh Berber name. And then we, uh, before we get to the actual game mechanics, we have some suggestion on concepts. Uh, and normally, I'm I'm one of the ones who just skips concepts because you know I'm like I'll I'll make up my own concept. But here, these concepts, I think they um, they help demonstrate the difference between the Muslim and the Christian world. So even in the concepts, you get an idea of what this uh, world, this culture is about. So all in all, I like this uh, first part of the chapter. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, again, there are some really useful things there, like, like you mentioned, that there's a list, list of names. And so if, uh, if, if you 
if you want something other than than Ali, for example, then there are a bunch of <laughs> like it's a bunch of inspirations, and it's it's not only names, it's the honorifics and uh, and and uh, things like that. So so it's again, it's it's something that is practical, and as you mentioned, you you might want to do some research research uh, on names from other. Um, from other cultures but again it's it's really useful and and easy to use it's just you could probably just number the names and roll a die if if you want to make it random um but but yeah i i do like the uh the concepts as well because it's since this is a very new and and kind of different idea that you have the ashir and the, the whole vampiric um, arabian world uh, then it's it's nice of the, the authors to include kind of like yeah this is how we feel that the different clans uh, w- what Nietzsche's they feel uh, in this in in our setting uh, and of course it also it's also ha- helpful if you're going to build a coterie so that um, or, or it gives ideas like for example that yeah our our coterie. Um, is is made up of of uh, nomadic bandits, or we're all serving as uh, Mamluk uh, soldiers to someone. Uh, so so it gives you some ideas on uh, not only what to play as uh, as your player character, but also for your coterie, which is nice. Yeah. So the next part is uh, new and altered uh, uh, or new traits, and we start with new and altered abilities. For new abilities, we get expression for talents and strategy for skills, uh, and then we get some new and altered knowledges, academics, geography, law, linguistics, and theology. Um, expression makes a lot of sense, uh, and in later edition, it does become a core talent because you know it 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 makes sense to to have that. This is you know poetic expression, yeah. public speaking, that sort of thing. Strategy is a bit off um, and could easily be used uh, outside of just the Islamic setting. It doesn't need to be specific to that. Obviously, everybody else uses strategy as well. And and the way it's described, it also encompasses tactics, which I've always thought would just fall under under leadership. So it, yeah, it, that yeah. seems a bit sort of, uh, you know, did we really need that? Um, academics is changed to match the higher education of the Muslim world rather than the 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 uh, the Christian world, mm. so it, it talks about how they do higher education. A geography is a bit odd, but in a time where most people don't have uh, much knowledge about the land outside their own area, it can make sense to have ge- geographical knowledge. Um, law covers uh, Sharia, and I have to say, I don't know how much secular law there was in the Muslim world at this time. I know that in Christian lands, you, you had a, uh, a divide between canon law and secular law, um, I don't know in, in Muslim lands at this time whether Sharia covered uh, all situations, both um, both religious and non-religious. Um, so, so how much sense it makes that it, it's only Sharia uh, law. Um, linguistics is almost unchanged, but I do like how all characters automatically get Arabic, uh, if that's not their native language, since Arabic is the lingua franca of the Muslim world. Um, so it, it makes sense that you have this as a as a common yeah, tongue. And, and more importantly, if you are a Muslim, then you are supposed to uh, read the Quran in in Arabic. Uh, so yeah, which is a very very different thing from uh, from Europe, where the sermons were in in Latin, but nobody cared if people understood Latin. Yeah, whereas exactly. here, 
you should understand Arabic in order to understand the religion. Yeah, because uh, Arabic as as a language, uh, it uh, it can the meaning of words can deviate uh, and and can be hard to translate. And we we do have kind of the same problem with um, with with the different translations uh, of of the Bibles as well. Uh, and and especially since we have so many translation of the Bibles, not not only from the original, what is it, Hebrew and Aramaic, and then later yeah. on Greek, and and some of it is in Latin, uh, and then you you translate it into um, not only like you have you have the King James Bible from the what's that? Uh, That's uh, the sixteenth yeah. or seventeenth. Sixteen hundreds. Yeah. Sixteen hundreds. And and the English and and the things they choose to not include in that translation makes it quite different from uh, from other translations in other languages. And uh, Sweden had it was actually called Bible Two Thousand, which in um, it's a very '90s uh, <laughs> title, I think, for it. But it, it was it was a new Bible translation that would uh, that that was finished um, in the year 2000. So it's it's uh, it's not a new and improved Bible, and it's it's not a Bible that leveled up. But it's it's still the Bible 2000, which I think is yeah. nowadays the the official translation of the Swedish Church and. What they did with that was that they actually wanted to go back to more of the original sources to ah. get a more proper uh, translation so that we could get away from things like in the King James Bible where they kind of mixed and matched the things that, that they wanted uh, to, to suit yeah. the political needs of, uh, of the days. Uh, but that's yeah. a problem you don't really have with Islam. Uh, because you're you're all supposed to read the original language of the text, and of course, yeah. The the, the idea is that the the Quran should never ever be changed. Yeah. It should stay in Arabic, uh, and it should it the, it's uh, quote unquote illegal to change it now. Obviously, uh, we do know that uh, at least one dynasty in the early times when the the Quran still wasn't a hundred percent compiled. Did some yeah. some editing, but on the whole, if you look at the history of the Bible and the history of the Quran, uh, the Quran has been a lot less edited than the the Bible has. Yeah, exactly, and and it's also uh, if if you allow me a short detour, uh, if if <laughs> if we compare the the actual uh, historical sources on the life of the prophet and the life of of Jesus Christ, we do have more. Uh, not only secular sources, but only also um, sources from from people that weren't of the same religion or sect uh, as as Muhammad, because um, as as you do start getting the expansion and and uh, him basically building an empire, you also get sources from the people who he conquered, like that, like for example, in I think there are some sources from the Byzantine Empire that is that are actually written during or or just about when it happened so we have like oh fuck now we now we have uh, this uh, this newfangled religion with the leader and he's starting conquering cities and his name is muhammad uh, unlike uh, things that that you have about jesus which most of the sources we have are written down at least a generation after he was supposed to live so uh, 
so so there there is a bit more historicity of course there's still a lot of things that can be de- be debated if it actually happened uh, but but we have uh, the, the sources that we do have are closer in time to when it's actually supposed to have taken place. Mm, yeah, which of course also makes sense because it was uh, an, at a later time yeah. than um, than than Jesus. Mm. Um, so the last uh, ability that they that they have is theology, and obviously this should have been in the core book, and it does become a core mm. ability in the next edition. So that's a good choice. I don't know if you have any more comments on the abilities that they've they've chosen to put in here. Uh, no, no, not really. Uh, it's uh, some of them might be situational, but if if one of them is f- like it fits your concept, then yeah, use it. And in, 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 uh, again, it's something that it's it's nice that it's there if you need it, but you don't have to use it if you don't want to. Yeah, uh, we then get a single discipline power uh, animalism six, which allows the user to semi blood bond all animals drinking from an oasis that they have bled into. Uh, it's an interesting power that makes uh, sense, but it's all we get. I, I would have loved to have seen more powers dedicated to things like, for example, desert survival uh, or yeah. other things that might come up in this setting. Uh, so for once, I would have I would have liked uh, more more powers. <laughs> Uh, we have some merits and flaws, nothing special here, though I wonder about the slave flaw because I don't really see canines being slaves as such. Um, but is there anything you want to mention? Yeah, I, I agree on your observation on uh, uh, on the discipline powers. Uh, again, we have a really long book, so it, it would be nice to have some more stuff that you could actually just lift up and use. Uh, especially since, since the power, and I, I do like the idea of the power, uh, the the animalism power, uh, but it's kind of similar to the one that we had in uh, in, in just yeah. the previous book, where you could basically order all of the animals in an area to to perform a specific task. So it it kind of overlaps a bit there, uh, but but as you mentioned, there are so many things both both thematic and practical uh, when it comes to. Uh, to this part of the world that that would have been interesting to have in it. Um, yeah, the, the merits and flaws you you can take them or leave them. The the slave flaw, it I, I don't know. You could probably work it in in that perhaps you are uh, a slave to your sire or to the the sultan of the city or something like that, or or that you were known to have been a slave when you were a mortal and that that social stigma has kind of uh, bled into your status in in unlife or something but but yeah it, otherwise it doesn't really make that much sense um also i think that being an apostate could probably be more problematic than just being a four point it's it's either a two point oh, or four yeah. point flaw but it it could easily be a seven point flaw depending on how <laughs> mean your storyteller is. Yeah, and and how fanatic the the vampires around you yeah. are. Um, next is seer or Islamic blood magic. It's well written, well presented, and ties in very well with earlier things like the warding of the Kaaba. Mm. Uh, and it is mentioned that Islam has a slightly better outlook on magic than Christianity, but still, I am not a big fan. Of the proliferation of blood magic, yeah, yeah. Um, it there's too much of it. One thing I do like is that it's mentioned that you cannot learn seer if you know Tremere thaumaturgy because 
it's just incompatible thinking and uh, that if and you have difficulty practicing seer if you know Asamite sorcery because Asamite sorcery relies on non-muslim traditions i really wish that there were more rules on how magic systems are incompatible uh, but other than that yeah i'm i'm really not a fan of this yeah and it's also for me it's it's something that works best as a storytelling device for the storyteller rather than something that that the players can run around and well they're not literally throwing fireballs but but kind of the metaphorical fireball throwing um so so for example they mentioned the the nosferatu uh, uh, wizard i don't know the the practitioner of of seer yeah. uh, tariq and it's like yeah it's it's cool because he's one of those uh, ancient kind of background originators of uh, of the Ashira as well. So you have him and Suleiman, who are kind of these mythical figures in the setting, and it makes sense that they have something that is more mythical and mysterious and and strange than the player characters. Because you you come back to the whole thing that. If, if you shine a light on something, then it's not scary and mysterious anymore. Uh, and, yeah. and I feel that the Veil of Night as a setting is a setting that very much benefits from having mysteries and things moving in the shadows that you don't really know what it is. Uh, and, and for once, I'm actually going to say that uh, that I, I wouldn't mind if you throw in... Um, something that technically would be a, a pack of lupines but in this it's it's these uh, moon demons this these uh, canine moon demons that are harassing uh, pilgrims on the way to to the kaaba or something or you have uh, jinns um, in in an oasis in the desert and they they sit on huge uh, treasures of of knowledge and and gold or whatever and and you need to placate them to uh, to further your own quest or something like that. So, so having having seer and blood magic as just another game mechanic kind of takes away from all that in a way that definitely isn't my cup of tea. Yeah. Okay. Then comes combat, including weapons and armor, and I'll try to keep this short. <laughs> Um, I like how they mentioned that most weapons and armor uh, in the Islamic world are the same as in the Christian world, but just have other names. And, at, and they mentioned that this time straight swords were as common as curved ones. I am not an expert on Islamic weapons and armor, but I have done some research and the stuff presented here is, is good. Uh, you can always do more, more research yourself if you want. Uh, I do have a few comments. Uh, so they mention a saber as their cur curved cavalry yeah. sword, but saber comes from the Polish shapla. I'm probably mispronouncing that. Uh, it'd be better to just use the word curved sword, or if you wanted a Middle Eastern word, there's the Persian shamshir, the Turkish kilic, or you could just use the word scimitar because people know what that yeah. is. Uh, then there's the saif, which is said to be a straight sword. However, saif just means sword in Arabic. And at this time, it could be referring to uh, either a curved or a straight sword, uh, but good on them for, for having a straight sword. Then there's the composite lance, which they uh, say is two lances joined together, and you have to be really strong to use them. The only reference I've been able uh, to find of a compound lance was used by the winged hussars hundreds of years later. Uh, but if anyone has some info on two lances joined together in the time period, I'd really like to know because I haven't been able to find any mention of it other than here. Uh, 
Uh, and finally, I have to mention something that I really, really hate. And that is when it's clear that the game writers don't understand their own game mechanics. So they mention armor-piercing ammunition for bows and crossbows. Yeah. And they say that such arrows reduce armor soak by one, but they also re reduces the arrow's damage by one. Because of the way armor work, that doesn't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> unless the target has no armor, in which case the arrow just does less damage. Because you, you roll one less damage for soak, but also one less uh, damage uh, die for damage. It cancels each other out, yep. and that annoys me so much because, seriously, if you're writing a gaming system, you should know the gaming system. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a, a miss. <laughs> but, but that is that is I I really don't like. Yeah, that. there there, there uh, are a few kind of mistakes like that, and uh, and and it's it, it was. I mean, I'm glad you brought it up because that's that's just one of the things that doesn't make any sense, uh, and yeah. and it's also. Uh, okay, okay, I'm I'm nitpicking again, but um, back back in the in the travelogue chapter where you had the, the in-game travel journal going through the Middle East and or the the Islamic world, uh, you also all of a sudden have a mention of of a Nosferatu, which is kind of weird because previously in and and consistently all through the book they they've used the the Arabic names of the different clans and all of a sudden you don't, which is like, come on! You, you you should you should read through it. You should proofread things so you you don't miss silly mistakes like this. And and as you mentioned, is that basically armor-piercing arrows are pointless, probably literally, yeah. uh, because they, <laughs> they don't make any sense. Uh, if yeah. like yeah, well I I don't know. The the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. I guess. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway, there's also something on Siege, which looks good, and System for Mounted Fighting. Now, it makes sense that they have some more rules on Mounted Fighting, because there was a bigger emphasis on that in the Muslim world than in the Christian world. We also have a couple of um, martial arts instruction manuals in the art of uh, Furusha or something. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing mm -hmm. that right. Um, and they, they do mention that later. And these predate uh, the European manuals, so it's, it's nice that they mention... Uh, these manuals, they mention this system of fighting, which focuses both on how to act in in combat, how to act in war, and how to fight on horseback and stuff like yeah. that. Uh, however, there are a few things in the system that I don't really, I think, don't really f uh, fit. One is thrusting with lances. Sure, if it's a spear that you're using at a as a lance, you could also thrust with it. But lances were very heavy, and they were optimized for the lance charge. Trying to use them. Uh, as one-handed spears on horseback, that would have been really, really awkward. Yeah. There was a reason why swords, axes, and maces were carried as sidearms, because even if your lance didn't break on the lance charge, if you got into uh, melee combat, you would drop your lance and pull out your, your sidearm, because the lance was too unwieldy to be used uh, for anything other than a lance charge. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. And there's also... Sorry, oh, yeah, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, there's also the rules that you need melee 3 and ride 3 to do a lance charge. That seems very prohibitive. I mean, just, you know, let anyone with ride and melee do a lance charge. They just roll less dice, with, which means there's a bigger chance of them failing or even botching. Uh, so that's, you know, and botching is, is with a lance charge is going to be bad. Yeah, it's, it's um, I'm getting images from, uh, from the Braveheart movie. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah. but but yeah, and uh, but it's uh, 
I, I think it's supposed to be a bit thematic that that only the the really professional uh, soldiers like European knights and stuff like that actually know how to to do a lance charge and and but but again it it makes no sense that you aren't really even allowed to try it if you don't have a certain amount of um, of of dots in in melee and and riding. Um, I'm, I'm yeah, because in that case you sorry, but in that case you'd also want to implement a uh, an archery restriction yeah. on using an English yeah, longbow exactly. because that took years upon years yeah, of training. Exactly. So. so so it's it, it again I can I can see why they did it, but it's not really a good solution to the problem that they're trying to solve. Uh, I'm I'm also no. going to nitpick you just just a little bit because no one is safe from my nitpicking, uh, but and, ah. and or, or just to, to clarify what you mentioned about um, horse warfare and uh, and, and horse combat, uh, because uh, we, we do have around this time we, we do have quite uh, a focus on uh, on mounted combat in in Europe as well, but it's it's more varied in this part of the world because basically. That is true. In, yeah, in exactly. Europe, you had the mounted uh, knight or or man at arm uh, who would charge with a lance and then start chopping away with with an axe or a mace or a sword, basically. Uh, but in this part of the world, you have uh, you still have a lot of horse archer, archers. You have um, lighter cavalry that are used more for hit and run tactics and stuff like that. So so but but yeah I, I do like it and because it, it varies and it shows the difference between uh, the the European can style of warfare which is basically either your your infantry or your uh, you're a charging knight. Uh, of course you could have people riding horses to and from the battle and then fighting on foot and later on in the Hundred Years War you have uh, mounted archers um, that should really be described as, as riding archers because they would ride to where they were going, jump off the horse, lose a lot of arrows, and then ride away. Uh, yeah, they were basically dragoons. Yeah, pretty Early much. Dragoons. Yeah, pretty much uh, in, in the way that dragoons were used later on. Uh, but but yeah, it's it again. I I don't know if I would use all of these things, but it's it's nicely written and it's uh, it's useful if you want to do it and. Again, it shows the difference between the cultures, which is um, again it's something that that is really interesting when or almost necessary. Like if if you want to do uh, a campaign like this, you don't just want uh, Europe but with different names because what's the point? So yeah, so yeah, yeah, and like like you said, there is uh, there is um, a, in in Europe, cavalry was basically. Uh, heavy uh, cavalry, uh, whereas in uh, in in the Middle East, missile cavalry mm. played still played a yeah. very big part. And they do talk about missile cavalry, and that's another thing where I think they um, they made a mistake because they say that unless you have a mounted specialty in archery, you have a plus two difficulty when using archery from horseback, plus four if the mount is moving. Given that four dots represent a pretty high skill level that would make missile cavalry a lot less effective than they historically were because you're not going to tell me that a majority yeah. of Mongol horse archers had archery of four at least. Yeah, and, uh, and the speciality of, of horse archery. Uh, yeah, and they and they were very, very good at shooting from, uh, yeah. uh, from horseback. I would say make it a merit instead. 
have a one-point merit called Horse Archer, yeah. which uh, eliminates all or most of the penalties of 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 shooting from from horseback, and you could do the same thing uh, if you wanted the lance charge to be special. Just make it a one-point merit that you're trained in the lance charge, rather than requiring you to have these very very high uh, dots, which doesn't make sense based on how normal people would be. I mean, for a player character, having four dots in archery, if you're going to make a horse archer, yeah, you're probably going to have that. But your average Mongol or or um, uh, Egyptian horse archer is not going to have that. Yeah, especially, and and this is another example of, of where they haven't really adhered their their new ideas to, to the existing rules, because on page... 169 you have you have a sidebar called basic horseplay uh and and i think they have something similar in in other books uh because i recognize it and the first bullet point is that the mounted character's ride skill serves as a maximum for any combat uh, for any combat ability used on horseback if the rider has a higher melee than ride for example use ride instead which means that to to be able to get the full benefit of those four dots of archery, uh, that uh, Mongol horse archer also has to have at least four dots of ride. Uh, yeah, and, and that's uh, as you mentioned it. Like, yeah, the the the, the horse uh, archers of of these uh, <laughs> of these uh, uh, time periods, they were really really skilled. But I'm doubting that all of them were this skilled as well. So. So instead of demanding four points of, of archery and that speciality, just just go with it. That that yeah, you use your you you're limited by how good you are at riding. And I like that as an as an idea because it makes a lot of sense. It can be a bit limiting if 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 you play a character that is supposed to uh, be good at at mounted combat, but who won't be able to use. Uh, like, like you, you have to dump a lot of skill points into riding uh, that you might not be able to use in uh, in other cir- circumstances in your in your campaign. So, for example, if you're playing a mounted horse archer, but most of the the actual gameplay takes place in uh, in an urban setting, or if you're doing some kind of dungeon crawl or something, then then you're gonna have wasted a bunch of points that that your fellow <laughs> that that the, the rest the other players can spend on somewhere else uh, and still be suit their characters and their concepts. So um, yeah, yeah, it's it, it can be a bit annoying. I mean, and not to to plug my own work, but still, I'm going to. <laughs> now, if you want to see how I've I've done it, I have a book on the Storytellers Vault called Dark Medieval Armory, where basically, you know, I I use merits to to cover this. There's a merit for being a mounted archer. Uh, I think it's a one and then a two or three point merit, depending on how skilled you are. There is a merit for being a cavalryman, so that you can use your melee skill better when you're mounted. Uh, and I introduce extra penalties for armor and shields. But once again, these can be mitigated with, with merits because, you know, when you train, you can train to overcome these penalties. And it doesn't require you to have insanely high uh, uh, dot levels yeah. in order to do that. 
we end with some systems for life and unlife, and I think these systems does a good job uh, illustrating life and unlife in the Islamic world, and then a section on true faith. This includes the effects of the keening and systems for holy places that fixes the problems of sight having a true faith that was in Jerusalem by night where they basically had some situations where you'd be rolling a willpower roll with a difficulty of one. Uh, that, that, that's been fixed here. There's also mention of what Muslims would use as holy symbols when warding off vampires, which I think is really nice because Islam is a very iconoclastic religion. Yeah. So it's, it, it's, it's nice to see, okay, but what would they then use since, since they're uh, very opposed to using, to using symbols? So I think this, this final bit uh, has some really good stuff in it. Yeah, I, I agree. The, the, the section on uh, life and unlife and death, mo mortal affairs or the systems of life and unlife, it starts with mortal affairs uh, and literally rolling for marriage. Uh, like, like you have a bunch and, and rolling for marriage and rolling for divorce uh, and um, family disputes and stuff like that. And, um, and I... Again, I really do like the fact that they included uh, a bunch of stuff like that. This, uh, but I, I'm not sure that I would ever use it because I don't think, like, if if I imagine playing a character in this setting, I I don't really think that that having like a, a, a domestic dispute, role for who gets to yeah clean the basement. <laughs> I I don't think it's ever something that. Uh, would come up in in a game. Um, it, it's it's a lot like The Sims, uh, Vampiric Edition, uh, but they have some <laughs> they have some other really good ones in that they have crime and administration uh, and and bribery and corruption and stuff like that. So so example, uh, some of these go on for a bit too long. Again, it could be just examples given like yeah well if you're trying to to bribe someone you could either roll intelligence uh, plus politics or manipulation plus subterfuge um if you're adjudicating the law you can use intelligence and theology or law uh just showing that um that that sharia is is still very much a uh, a religious uh, system of law um and and you don't really need to go in to, to too much detail uh, so you could use the, the space for something else but uh, but yeah I, I do like the fact that they have so uh, so many different examples uh, but it's probably very different from game to game how much of these you you're actually going to use exactly yeah the last chapter before the appendix gives us uh, a sample setting Damascus. I think it's a good choice uh, given Damascus's history yeah. and its position in the Islamic world's power structure at the time. And it's uh, it's also quite close to the Crusader states, which makes it useful in a chronicle that focuses more on Western vampires. Um, it's, um, it's short, obviously, but uh, I think it does a good job of presenting a setting using the information given in the rest of the book. The ultimate litmus test is always, can I see myself using this setting? And uh, I might not run a game set in Damascus, but I could definitely see myself using it as, as somewhere that, that characters visit or, or have, um, you know, as, as, as a starting point. Uh, I should mention uh, there is a Dark Ages Damascus book 
on the Storyteller's Vault. I haven't read that uh, yet, but I'm going to at some point. Uh, but anyway, I think it's a nice example of a setting. Yeah, I, I agree. The the only thing I really don't like about it is, is all of the barley, but again, that's, that's <laughs> yeah, just I me. Yeah, I thought you would. Yeah, but, but <laughs> as you mentioned, it's it's short and concise and to the point, so it's basically everything that this podcast isn't. Uh, and, and again, we have the, the really nice map of the city uh, that is is useful and uh, also like nicely drawn. It's it's quite simplistic, but it's 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 not like a modern city map. Uh, so again, you could probably just use it, copy it, uh, and, yeah. and distress the paper and hand it to your players. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, it's like. Uh, as we said, it's 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 short because it has to fit into this book. So obviously, you'd have to do your own research. But uh, as an example of uh, a Veil of Night setting, it is a, a very good choice. Um, the appendix looks at other supernaturals in the Muslim world: werewolves, mages, mummies, etc. A lot of it repeats information from or refers to books from other game lines. And I kind of wish they'd scrapped all uh, of that and just focused on the jinn, which are really iconic for the setting. I think they could have done a lot of interesting stuff with either a unique type of beings in the setting or just making the jinn a special type of spirits. So yeah, the appendix, it just seems like a missed opportunity to me. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, and, and I mentioned kind of what I wanted previously, so I'm not going to repeat that. I, I do like the, the fact that they go through the whole... Um, the... the genius uh, granting wishes and stuff like that and yeah and that uh, they, they do give different ideas on uh, what would happen if if a vampire would ask uh, the the gene to remove the curse of Cain like would it work and and the fact that they write that the definitive answer is maybe uh, which yeah exactly which is, <laughs> is like yeah that's that's the a lawyer's answer and I really like it and and uh, but but they don't leave it at that. They give different ideas that perhaps you can you can have your mortality back for for a single day, so you can uh, you, you can say goodbye to loved ones, or that you as long as your uh, mortal lover is alive, then then you can be with him, or uh, s- stuff like that, which could be really cool for um, for for plot hooks like. Um, if like like it could be the the end reward for for a really long campaign like yeah you you finally manage to do all the things that ne- that you need to get the the treasure or whatever it is that the, that the jinn uh, needs and and wants to be able to grant you your wish and your wish is that your your character can spend a year as as a mortal uh, to to be with the loved ones, and then you can just that could be just a cool epilogue for an entire character and an entire campaign. Yeah, at some point I should uh, I should tell the story of a, a LARP I once ran, which was uh, set in I think it was Damascus before this book came out, but where I um, it was for a convention where the um, the theme was a thousand and one nights, so I made it uh, a little more high fantasy than uh-huh, than Dark Ages yeah. Vampire normally is. But that included uh, a a lamp with a gin in it uh, and stuff like that. I'll I'll tell the story at another <laughs> point, but it was it was quite fun. Yeah, cool. uh, all right, so. Before we judge this book, I want to mention something that my wife um, said before um, when I told her we were doing this book because she asked me, well, when did this book came out? And I said 2001. 
And she said, when in 2001? Oh, yeah. I was like, oh, yeah. And it's, I think, I'm fairly certain it was April 2001. And she just said, I wonder what this book would have looked out if uh, looked like if it came out after uh, yeah. September 2001. Yeah. And I kind of, I kind of hope that it would have looked pretty much like this. Yeah. Because I'd like to think that, that you know, uh, the the writers wouldn't have been uh, wouldn't have let what had happened affect affect them, but it's it's an interesting thought really that this book might have looked a lot different if it had come out just a year later, uh, but we'll never know. Yeah, I, uh, I think the most likely outcome is that this book would have been scrapped or put on hold completely. Um, yeah. Um, anyway. Fortunately, that didn't happen yeah. because I absolutely 100% love this book. It expands the Dark Ages setting both in mortal and canine terms far beyond the borders of Christian Europe. It is engaging and interestingly written. Uh, and apart from the blood sorcery, I think it adds a lot of great stuff to the game. Also, it manages to tread a fine line when it comes to describing the history and culture of Islam. It doesn't paint it as a misogynistic mass of jihad fanatics who hate everyone who isn't uh, a Muslim, uh, and it doesn't go in the other direction and make all Westerners out to be uncultured, brutal barbarians when compared to the sophisticated Muslims who saved civilization. It it balances. Uh, I heartily endorse people getting this book if they don't already have it. Obviously, it is a must if you want to run a game in Muslim lands, but it's also great for adding flavorful characters from the Islamic world to the game. Yeah, <laughs> over to me. <laughs> that that. Uh, over to yeah. you. That that was that was my take yeah, on it. Yeah, I I agree. Um, the the things I don't like about this book is is the things that I've already mentioned in in that uh, uh, the informative chapters are are written as a first person uh, narration, which is is really it often gets all over the place and it's it, it gets it makes the book less useful as uh, as a, a as a resource for a campaign. But the actual stuff that you get in in this, it's there's a lot of, of unfortunately hidden gems, but but a lot of good ideas and um, and and concepts and and the the entire setting in and of itself is is really well written and and thought through. Like like that's something that when and when when you read a lot of. Um, a lot of role-playing books and and there are like if if there's a new setting or a new like yeah let's let's write another monster book for for this uh, game then a lot of the things that they include don't really fit into the rest of the world uh, but they're cool so we're gonna include it anyways and for me that's that's always um, it, it ruins or, or it, it detracts from the, the good stuff in those kinds of bo books because, yeah, sure, in, in like take take Dungeons and Dragons, for example, where you have a bunch of weird uh, monsters living in places where really no one should be living, but they can explain that away by saying that, well, this is a multiverse setting and, and some of these creatures were created by a mad wizard in... Uh, a completely different um, universe and they needed to get rid of their failed experiments so they just chucked them into the multiverse and that's why we have these weird things in this setting uh, and that works because that's such a high fantasy setting uh, but in 
in the world of darkness where it's much much more grounded and is supposed to be connected to our real world you need to be a lot more careful with introducing stuff uh, and ideas and concepts and I, I think they've done it really really well in this book uh, and and they managed like like I said they they Ashira the entire idea of of what a uh, a sect of vampire uh, in this part of the world would be uh, works really really well and and you could easily like I I'm curious to see uh, or or to find out why this sect didn't survive into the modern nights like we you could do an entire campaign about the rise and fall of. Uh, of the Ashira and what happened when the Anarch yeah. Revolt finally reaches this region of the world, like that—that th- that could be something really, really cool. Um, and so, so yeah, it, it kind of fits um, the um, the the litmus test that you mentioned. That do I want to play this? Do I want to include this? Do I want to do something with it? And for me, the answer is a, a definite yes. Yeah. Um... I just want to mention this is, like you also said, almost what two hundred and thirty pages or something like that. As a big book, there's a lot of stuff we we haven't gotten into, but at the same time, like we're we're getting close to uh, to this one being almost two hours. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, if if we had to get into everything, uh, it would just get far too yeah. long. Um, the next book we're taking a look at is Bitter Crusade, which advances the timeline from 1197 to 1204 and focuses on the Fourth Crusade, which was some interesting times, let's just yeah. say. Uh, also, we have a one-year anniversary coming up. The 20th of August was um, the first uh, of our podcasts being uploaded, and the 20th of August this year just so happens to be a Friday, so we should probably have a, a side quest talking about a one-year anniversary coming out on that Friday. Yeah, let's, let's um, see what we can do, yeah. So, uh, Peter, do you have any last comments before we sign off? Uh, no, it's uh, it, it's been enough, uh, but, but yeah, <laughs> I, I enjoyed, it, it was a lot to read, but I did enjoy reading it. Awesome. Uh, So it is goodbye from me, Jacob. And salam alaikum from me, Peter. Farewell and see you next time. Goodbye.